Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the Northumbria Politics Society podcast. First of all, we have some really exciting news. The guys from Surviving Society podcast will be here at Northumbria to record a special episode on Wednesday the 23rd of March at 2 till 3pm in the Littman building, room 013. So it'll be great to see as many people there as possible to support the guys from Surviving Society podcast. Yeah, and I think it has been mentioned to us that there's potentially opportunity for us to maybe work with them at some point. So if anyone has any questions for the Surviving Society podcast but can't make that event, we are hoping to build a network there when we go. So hopefully we'll be able to get them on the podcast later down the line. Definitely. It's worth shouting out their Spotify as well. They're on, they're on Spotify yeah. so you can listen to Surviving Society podcast. Do you know what I've just realised as well? In the how many ep- in the five episodes we've done now, yeah. I don't think we've ever started this podcast by saying, how are you? Oh, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I know we do it. I know we do it eventually, but for, for the podcast I listen to, that's like the first question <laughs> they ask. We've always got like, something going but we're on. Just, we're just straight into it, and I suppose that in a way, that's sort of like a metaphor for politics. Is that there's yeah. no there, there's no time for pleasantries, really? Is that we just have to get straight into it? Definitely. But I how suppo- are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, a little bit stressed with all my work, which is why I couldn't make the debate that's last all week, right. which is what we were going to talk about next actually but no I'm, I'm doing okay good yeah I had a presentation this week and I'm yeah how really did that happy go? that that's over well it went okay I think it went okay I'm glad it's done now yeah I think I did I think I did that presentation last year yeah, and I quite enjoyed it you enjoyed it yeah I mean it was it was nerve-wracking but I enjoyed it because it was it was the cold war wasn't it Yes. Yeah, yeah so that's quite a not an easy topic, but there's a lot of literature on it. Yeah. So because it's the Cold War. Good weight it, off your shoulders. It's as like well one of when it's you like, walk the, out and you're done. like one of the biggest political events in oh, human the, history. Oh, the most important. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just, I'd like to just do another little shout out to our Instagram as well. If you're not already following us on the Instagram, which is Northumbria Politics Society. Oh, and then our Twitter, which is. Polsock pod as well fabulous sorry yeah. i didn't know where you were going <laughs> with that i was just yeah please follow us we post lots of updates on that on events that are going on within the society as well yeah and one of the events was obviously the event last night yeah. which we did in collaboration with the northumbria cocktail society yes yeah it was here at the student union and it was to celebrate international women's day so it was international women's day on tuesday and it was great to see the stall that the northumbria women against sexual violence had at the student union they had a brilliant quiz with some shocking statistics to raise more awareness for international women's day and um, just one that i found was that globally an estimated 736 million women that's almost one in three have been subjected to physical and or sexual violence at least once in their life. So I'd just like to say a massive thank you to the members of Northumbria Women Against Sexual Violence for everything that they do. They're doing such an amazing job. And they are a group of people who, again, we're looking to hopefully work with on the podcast later down the line. So hopefully we'll be able to ask them questions and be able to learn more because it is quite a shocking statistic. I, I didn't know that until just now. Yeah, there's some crazy statistics. And that is... Uh, statistics yeah, there. it is. It is quite eye-opening really and sort of on that note of violence against women we had the news come out this morning about the metropolitan police which literally broke just as we were both about to start our afternoon lecture so unfortunately we've not had much time to yeah cover it so i thought we'd do it in the news roundup so it's it was a two-day hearing at the high court in back in january um and they argued that the decisions made by the force in advance of the planning of the vigil amounted to a breach of the rights of the freedom. This was the, sorry to interrupt, this was the Sarah Everard vigil, yeah, the vigil Sarah Everard that vigil. made the news. At Clapham uh, Common. At Clapham Common, I believe it was this time last year. Yeah. Around this time. Ago. So basically you've probably seen 
how the Met came under fire for yeah. the way they handled well, the it's event. come out that they breached the right of freedom of speech and assembly. Yeah, and despite the COVID restrictions, and they've, that were in place. and they've tried they've tried using COVID restrictions as a way to deflect, well, not to deflect to justify their actions, but yeah, I mean, I've already made my feelings about the Met and Cressida Dick known on this podcast, but so I'll just say it again is that 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 defense is just an absolute disgrace, mm. really. So yeah, that's being confirmed now. Another thing that's being confirmed this week is um, the report about former House of Commons Speaker John Burko. Yeah, yeah. So if you don't know who John Burko is, you'll probably recognise the name. He was Speaker of the House of Commons for 10 years between 2009 and 2019. He was the former Tory MP for Buckingham who became notorious for his no-nonsense approach in maintaining order in the House of Commons. Oh, he was brilliant, wasn't he? Order? Yeah, it, and it, just the way he kept order has become quite iconic in British yeah. political culture, really. Definitely. But after the Brexit referendum, he became quite outspoken in his views. He wasn't offered a traditional peerage given to outgoing speakers after he resigned his position. And he did actually lobby the Labour Party, who he eventually joined after leaving the Parliament to get him a peerage and the Labour leadership at the time did nominate him for a peerage but it was rejected. Now in May 2018 Burko was accused of bullying on the BBC News tonight by his former private secretary and this claim was later backed up by three MPs who resigned from the Commons Reference Group on Representation and Inclusion which was chaired by Burko. They basically backed up the claims that he was that he was a bully and a, a formal complaint was submitted to Parliament on in January 2020, and earlier this year, 21 of the 35 allegations were upheld against him. Now, this week, an independent expert panel has upheld these findings. They've said that, quote, but, well, sorry, they've said that Burko had, quote, been widely unreliable and repeatedly dishonest in his evidence, end quote, a, quote, a serial liar, end quote, and quote, a serial bully, end quote. I've got some more quotes there as well. So the report conducted by an independent expert panel found that he had displayed threatening conduct, quote, towards staff, including verbal violence, sorry, verbal abuse and displays of anger. Um, the report also stated that he will not receive a parliamentary pass and that he had, had he still been an MP, he would have almost certainly been expelled by resolution from the House. Yeah, and he has been suspended by the Labour Party. Yeah in light of these findings and his response to these allegations are that the complaints were amateurish that's a quote tittle tattle and apparently he doesn't want to pass anyway i mean I, I can't quote that last one because i just read it i think on simple politics but i've not actually seen a source that said that he dismisses him wanting to get a pass yeah well he's hit back claiming the report to be a travesty of justice rooted in prejudice spite and hearsay and when asked on bbc radio 4's world at one program if he wanted to apologize he said he had not bullied anyone and that he did not believe in faux apologies he also called the independent the independent expert panel a kangaroo court which he had which he said had ignored large volumes of evidence so he's clearly not gonna back down is no. he but I mean, I personally, I've written a very, very expletive word in my note, which I will now point out to you and not repeat because this, wow. is, a, this is a family-friendly podcast. And that I, fe I feel that way about this response because, like I was saying before, he was so desperate for a peerage in Parliament that he lobbied the opposition. He switched sides, basically. He, he's, he's crossed, well, it's not that he crossed the floor, it's that he lobbied the opposition in order to get him the traditional peerage. Yeah. 
And okay, the fact that he was rejected this period probably had partisan undertones to it, given that he was quite outspoken against Brexit and Trump, which was where the Conservatives were obviously aligning their views to at the time. And like we say, it's tradition for the outgoing Speaker to be offered a peerage and to then sit in the House of Lords. But the bullying allegations probably didn't help his cause. I'm not saying that the Conservatives were, you know, right, basically saying that, oh, he's not getting a he's not getting a peerage because of these allegations. They probably played a factor, but I feel like if they took the moral high ground on that, that'd be wrong. It was probably more to do with partisanship. But the fact that he's then turned around and gone, well, he doesn't want a parliamentary pass anyway. A bit childish, that really. Yes, he does, because of how hard he lobbied in order to retain a peerage. Yeah. Which, like I say, is this word that I've written down, but I can't repeat. I've also said that he's not taking these allegations seriously. Sorry, not these allegations anymore, these findings seriously enough. And I wanted to do a little bit of research on bullying in the workplace at the moment. So I I actually rang and spoke to someone at ACAS, which is the Advisory Conciliation and Arbitration Service in the UK, which is basically like an expert in the workplace. Yeah. And I basically asked this woman who I was speaking to, who I'm really sorry I didn't get a name. I said to her, so in a standard workplace, what would happen if you were accused of bullying in the workplace and found guilty? And she basically told me that there isn't a simple answer. There isn't a one-size-fits-all solution because it all depends on like context, mitigating circumstances. So a number of different outcomes can actually happen. So, for example, she was saying that was the bullying, for example, if the bullying was based on discrimination or if it was just based on like a clash of personalities sort of thing. But what that basically showed me is because there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution is that bullying in the workplace is quite a complicated matter in the standard like everyday workplace and this is now being taken this is now happening in the place that that govern our country and make our laws and he's not taking this seriously at all in my opinion definitely i mean on the subject of how it's handled in the workplace it's even come out that had he still been an mp he would have almost certainly been expelled by resolution from the house yeah so i think that says it all really that had he still been employed he would have lost his job yeah which which is probably a common theme across most employers yeah exactly that's and that's what i mean is that that's what i was trying to wonder is that is it like an immediate sacking but what she was telling me was is that like i keep saying is that there's not a one-size-fits-all solution but that just shows how like intricate and seriously a matter like this is is taken in a standard workplace and the fact that he's basically come out and dismissed these allegations against him and been like well i don't he's he's almost doubled down Mm. doubled down on the whole thing by saying that he doesn't want to apologise and that what they found is rubbish and, you know, I didn't want a parliamentary pass anyway. Yeah. And it's the fact that he doesn't he doesn't really seem to be defending himself either, is that he's basically just trying to insult those who are accusing and investigating him. Like, if I got accused of bullying in the workplace, I'd be out there defending myself and trying to make the point diplomatically. If you knew you hadn't done it. If I knew I hadn't done it. Yeah, and if you knew you had done it, surely you'd apologise. Yeah, and obviously we can't go on here accusing him of of doing things that he hasn't done. But he, have, he has obviously been found by this independent inquiry to have bullied in the workplace. So I really don't understand why he's doubled down on this, quite frankly, these serious, these serious findings against him. Definitely. Yeah. Do you want to move on to... Um, yeah, 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 I can do. Ukraine? I don't really know what there is. There is much more to say about that. It's because it, it was quite a, it was quite a new story this week. Yes, so. yeah. It was one that we to had. To be honest, I hadn't heard of those rumours until this week. Oh, I knew the rumours no, because I they were being used. Because, you know, when the whole like 
debate was coming out about him and his stance on Brexit and the prorogation of yeah, Parliament those years that. ago. People were obviously standing up for him because he was he seemed to put across quite an anti-government position, mm. or an anti-Brexit position. But then people who were sort of like pro-government, pro-Brexit were firing back that he's a bully. So I knew that it was happening. You heard whispers of it. Yeah. Yeah. But it was one of those things where I just had to wait for... Evidence. Yeah, the, yeah, the findings to come out. And now the findings have come out and that it has found that John Burko, by the looks of it, bullied people in the workplace. So it's quite... It's, it's a very serious finding. It's a very serious finding, this report. And like I say, I just don't understand why he's not taking it as seriously as it should be being dealt with. Because if this was like your everyday workplace, it would be it would be quite a big allegation. I think it's probably because he's not employed by them anymore. So it's sort of out of their jurisdiction. Maybe. Maybe because he's making his money elsewhere. Yeah. But it can it can basically forget that period anytime soon. Mm, definitely. So yeah, now we'll move on to Ukraine. And this yeah. was something, because obviously we had our event last night and we were saying that when we first launched this podcast, is that like we thought, oh yeah, we'll do we'll do the oh, we'll escalating tensions in yeah. Ukraine. I didn't think five episodes in we'd still be talking about it, but I suppose that's that's how that's how politics works really. It's is dominating it? the news at the moment. It is dominating well. the news and we don't we don't obviously want to like talk Dwell about it in, it, yeah. in much detail. But it does need recognition. It, it does need heavy recognition. Things have moved on since we last spoke. Yeah, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, spoke in Parliament this week via um, remote connection and was obviously had was greeted with such a you know rupture. Admiration. Yeah, ab- yeah, admiration because he's doing an absolutely brilliant job at the minute. But the main thing that's been happening this week within the UK and the EU is the sanctioning of the oligarchs. And now you probably heard that term a lot over the news you might you may or may not know what it means so i basically want to explain what a russian oligarch is and why it's so like why it's dominating the news basically so the list of russian oligarchs that are being sanctioned by the uk and eu is growing because of the ukraine war and the oligarchs' support for vladimir putin the oligarchs basically came around in Russia following the USSR's collapse. So you know how obviously it was a one-party communist state until the 80s when Gorbachev came in and reformed it all. But basically at that point, everything was nationalised. So all the all the like utilities and all the all the the public everything was in the public service. And after the USSR collapsed, the oligarchs essentially took advantage of the unstable political and economic climate by purchasing assets in these newly privatised companies allowing them to make a lot of money very quickly. And a lot of them actually use loans to buy these assets and have then made, have become like ridiculously rich off the back of them, which has meant now that they wield huge amounts of power in Russia and Russian politics. And in, although it sort of came around, on, it started under Boris Yeltsin, the first president of Russia, it was Putin who really pushed this idea of carrot and stick oligarchy, which is a, a term that I've sort of just kind of made up but it basically means that like these oligarchs were given more and more and more access to these like private services in return for supporting putin in his political campaigns and a lot of these oligarchs now reside in london and probably the most notorious that you've seen in the news in the minute is roman abramovich who is the owner of chelsea football club he's yesterday has had he's added assets frozen which includes chelsea itself so at the minute they're basically in a state of limbo they've got this grant from the government well kind of like a grant it's kind of like a special license to, co- to 
continue operating, but under like very, very limited circumstances. They can't sell tickets. They can't can't sell tickets. Only season ticket holders can go to games. They can't sell merchandise. They can't sell the. They they can't sell. Well, that's the thing is that I know I'm not really sure about it because I've heard that is that they can sell, but. Basically, Abramovich can't po- pocket the profit. Well, before his assets were seized, he was claiming that he would sell Chelsea. Yeah, that's what he was trying and to do. The proceeds would go to Ukraine, you know, to help the humanitarian yeah, situation. But there. let's not let's not try and put up a front here that what Abramovich was doing was, you know, Innocent. benevolent yeah. and like putting the people of Ukraine first. Yeah. What he's doing is he was trying to cover his own back by selling Chelsea before he was sanctioned. Yes. And then by saying, oh, well, look at me, I'm putting the money towards the UK. I'm a philanthropist sort of thing. No. Do you think the UK acted quick enough in sanctioning our oligarchs? Or the oligarchs? Probably not. No. But in a way, it's kind of good that it took them that long because because obviously we saw Roman Abramovich try and, like, Mm. manoeuvre himself. He distanced himself from Putin as well, didn't he? He claimed that he was not a supporter of Putin. Yeah. Which, you know. which is even though he was the former governor of a region in the far east of Russia called Chukotka, Chukotka in um, the the two thousands, he was originally he was elected, but then in two thousand and five was appointed by Putin, right? Okay, and that ran until two thousand and eight, and that area of Russia has large reserves of fossil fuels, and funnily enough, he owns the mining company Euras. So he was essentially governor of this region that just so happened to be rich in fossil fuels, which were making his mining company money. And Putin appointed him. And Putin appointed him. Yeah, you see the circle here. Yeah, exactly. This is this is what Russian oligarchy is, is that it's regime supporters who are benefiting extremely unevenly. It's the minority wielding huge amounts of yeah. money, power and influence. And that's what and that's what oligarchy is. And and it's the fact that, like you were saying, have we acted quick enough to sanction the oligarchs? Probably not, but to an extent, that is kind of a good thing. Not in the actual action, but like I say, is that because Roman Abramovich has come out and tried to sell Chelsea in almost a blind panic, he's basically been he's basically shown his true colours. Mm. Is that he was just trying to save his own skin, and he's tried to hide that by saying that no, I'm going to donate the relief funds. I'm going to donate the profits to the Ukraine relief fund, which is like I say. Again, it's, it's just a facade, basically. It's just a total f- facade. And then another oligarch I wanted to focus in on, on who has been sanctioned by the EU, he's not actually been sanctioned by the UK, is Dmitry Mazepin, who owns the company Eurochem. Uh, and that is a Russian chemicals company. But he's been. what's interesting is that he's been sanctioned alongside his son, Nikita. And Nikita's not an oligarch. He's not a businessman. Do you know what Nikita Mazepin was? No, no idea. He was a Formula One driver. Oh. He was a Formula One driver for Haas F1 team last season. And what happened is that a subsidiary of Eurochem, Ural Kali, was basi- they basically bankrolled Haas F1 team. And in return, Nikita Mazepin got to drive because he was a racing driver. Not a very good one, I should, a- I should add. <laughs> he's a, he's, he was an absolutely terrible race. I mean, I'm not saying I could do any better, but by Formula One standards, he was absolutely terrible. But the deal was he was what's called a pay driver, which is basically like he's brought this big sponsorship in with him in return for a race seat. And now Haas have basically they've terminated the contract with Eurocali and have sacked Nikita Mazepin. And they've now both been sanctioned by the European Union. Yeah. Which is it's quite it's quite something, really, because I mean, Nikita Mazepin's a problematic guy as it is. So we'll but we'll not get into that. 
but it's really interesting to see how the the world of sports specifically has reacted to the sanctioning of sorry the war in Ukraine and the subsequent oligarch oligarchical pro- sorry the problems of oligarchs that we have in the UK because a lot of these oligarchs since since gaining these mass amounts of power have actually moved and to the UK so it's really really interesting to see sort of like what's going to be happening over there and it's like to an extent I'd I do feel quite sorry for sort of like the employees of places like Chelsea and the fans and like the manager they were chanting his name and the, at the match but that's the night, thing is that they? by the same token is that they were chanting his name like that's not that's not good really and I mean even the manager Thomas Tuchel came out and criticised that because it was like surely we've got to be you know more aware of more aware like you can't just like what Roman Roman Abramovich as a guy goes far beyond Chelsea Football Club yeah. really he's just become known in the UK and the West because mm-hmm. of his interests in Chelsea FC yeah. so, but by the same token is that sanctioning the ticket on the ticket front is a little bit you know hard on the fans but at the same time is that these actions need to be taken so it's really really interesting it's going to be really interesting to see what the government does in order to allow Chelsea to keep basically functioning as a regular football club because they're fu- they're basically in limbo now yeah. their their future is totally up in the air they are one of in, in the 21st century they've been one of the most successful football clubs in England they've won the European Cup a couple of times they've won the Premier League multiple times but that's what I mean is that now their own their owner has been sanctioned and this this has never happened before their future's hanging in the balance yeah exactly and that it just and it just shows just how many layers there is to this conflict that's happening in Ukraine yeah it's having and, a knock on effect and in it has so many reper- yeah it has so many repercussions in the west yeah and with that this is without a shot being fired in western europe as well like so it's going to be so interesting to see what happens and we will obviously be at the forefront of that definitely so do you want to move on to the final topic really that we want to talk about this week yeah so the final topic this week is that world leaders have signed a treaty on a plastic ban so it's a historic treaty in which 200 countries have pledged to agree to start negotiations on an international agreement to take action on the plastic crisis so i think it's really important that we tackle this worldwide problem with a worldwide solution and the un are going to be the ones who come up with the overall plan to tackle the plastic crisis but it's down to the individual countries to implement it so it's looking good so far if 200 countries have already signed the treaty but um well they haven't signed a treaty so they've signed basically they've signed something to say that we want to get a treaty we want to get a treaty rolling yeah yeah and apparently they're going to start drafting that treaty this year and they and they aim to finish it within two years yeah but it's down to the individual countries to implement it so but it's good that 200 have already pledged oh yeah definitely and i mean i've got to be honest with obviously the news of ukraine this is sort this sort of got lost in the pile really so i just want to take this opportunity to shout out my lecturer of the politics of oil module andy mullen who pointed this out to our lecture on wednesday because without him i I wouldn't have been aware of this like i'd I'd have i'd have totally missed this but no it's like you were saying is that we can't go we can't really talk about what this what this treaty is going to contain because it's just an agreement for now um just a framework yeah but what it is it the main part of it apparently is going to be aiming to shift away from single-use plastics and move more towards renewable plastics that can be used again and apparently the the head of the un environment program has described the treat the 
the forthcoming treaty as the most important multilateral environmental deal yeah. since the 2015 Paris Climate Accords. I've actually got a really weirdly similar phrase to that, so I've got written down here. Some people have described this move as one of the world's most ambitious env- environmental actions since the 1989 Montreal Protocol, which phased out ozone-depleting substances. So that really shows oh, wow. you just how much of a difference this could make to the worsening situation that people are comparing it to. 1989 Montreal Protocol. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, single-use plastics are a huge problem in the environment. Massive, yeah. Like, I try and sort of, like, watch what I'm doing in terms of, like, full reusable plastics. Like, I have, have obviously... I never really buy water bottles that much i always just bring my bring my one from home i've got sort of like reusable lunch boxes yeah. whenever i whenever i store f- food in the freezer i'll always just wash out the stuff that i've been doing and reusing them obviously I, i'm not gonna sit here and say that oh look at me i'm perfect because i don't i obviously I, there's times where i have no choice to use things like single-use plastics but hopefully this treaty will encourage and move away from that. Well, it's not about well, making the little changes, isn't yeah. it? Like something I've started doing this year is I've stopped buying cling film. I, yeah. I really hate cling film now. Yeah, I could I could probably do with doing that. I tend to use foil more than cling film, but sometimes I don't really have... Because you can recycle foil, can't you? Yeah. You can't recycle cling film. No, you, you don't... Yeah. So I've just fully stopped buying But it's like, I don't know if you've seen a, a, a Morrison's, for example. Have you seen like the sort of cucumber portions that they do? That really annoys me. They have a plastic film around the actual cucumber... And then it's bagged in a plastic bag. Oh, that's ridiculous. Yeah, double double plastic. That really annoys me. Because I, I get sometimes for hygiene reasons, they need like one covering. But when they double bag it, oh, it's ridiculous. Surely there's something that you could do to reduce the plastic waste just in that. Because they have they have this whole range about like reducing food waste. You know, and it's a very good range. I use it all the time. But by the same token, is that if these companies started making these little steps, the amount of plastic that, we, that we'd use would would be slashed yeah i mean it's all well and good individuals making small changes but i think it's definitely down to big businesses and how they start changing their production yeah definitely but this is this is for once some positive news in the climate in the climate fight and hopefully it will go a long way into fighting back against the emergency that is currently that is currently taking place on planet earth and the un are really heading this they're at the forefront of this yeah Hopefully it will have a really massive impact. Because obviously we had COP26 late last year. Yeah. But that was, it was a start, but there was still, there's still a long way to go from Definitely. that because they, I had, think to, that's what they had to slash, I think they ran overtime in slashing out a deal for that. Yeah. And it was sort of like what people like Greta Thunberg were saying is that we can't just keep talking. Yeah, we have to do. We have to actually do, do something. Yeah. And hopefully this treaty... That they're, tra- that they're going to try and slash out will actually do something. I know that they've already mentioned in, in the sort of framework of the treaty that there is a long way to go and this is, this is only just the beginning, really. Yeah, but it's always better to start. Definitely. It's always better to make a start. And the fact that, that there's going to be a, a treaty going into international law yeah. as well is sort of a positive thing. And I've just realised, actually, we didn't even do the news round at the start of this. We did. We, we, spoke, about, we spoke about International Women's Day. Yeah. And John Burko. Yes, we did. There was just two more things, really, that I wanted to mention. Yeah. And I think we've got time to mention that at the end. So earlier this week, that was quite interesting. I don't know if you saw that. 107 years after it sank in the Antarctic, they found the discovery of the ship Endurance. I don't know if you've seen that at all. I have briefly seen this, but it wasn't at the forefront, just because it's not political, yeah. particularly political. But I know it, that they can't rescue it off the seabed, though, can they? No, but it's very interesting because Endurance was the 
was the ship of Serena Shackleton, who basically was one of the key figures in the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. So, you know, people like uh, uh, Scott of the Antarctic and things yeah. like that. So Ernest Shackleton was basically, like, at the time, he was, like, a British superhero, really, Explorer in what he was doing. And adventurer. Because it, went, it moved on from, eventually moved away from sort of just exploring the Antarctic to be, like, heroes for and move towards what it is today, which is like Antarctica, Antarctica is used as a scientific research. research. Yeah. So that was that was quite an interesting fact. And then, unfortunately, I do want to finish on a little bit of a sad note. I just want to pay my own tribute here. So last Friday, I was just doing my uh, I was just doing my uni prep, and I got a notification through my phone informing me of the death of Shane Warne, the former Australian cricket player who died from a heart attack at the age of fifty two. And I am I've remained on this podcast before. I am a massive cricket fan. And so this like really hit home because Shane Warne basically, I know you're not really a cricket fan, so I'll have to explain this to you. He was basically the man who took this really, really uncool sport and made it a little bit cooler. Definitely. Like he was a man. I don't know if you've seen like I've seen vid- videos, videos yeah. of it. He had shaggy hair. His he was, he was, on. he had zinc on his face. Yeah. He was always in the tabloids. He dated Elizabeth Hurley at one point. He was an absolute rock star when it came to of the cricket. World, when it came to yeah. cricket, and he led the way into what it's become today with like with the short format of the game, where you see like fireworks and like live DJs and people getting the crowd involved. I know he was really famous for the spin that he put on the ball. As he, well. he was, yeah, he was. A, he was a the spin. Great clip that I saw of an English player that was batting, and he the just, ball of the century. He just sort of puts his hands in the air and goes. What was that? How the hell was I supposed yeah, to deal he, with yeah, that? Yeah, the ball of the century, which was his, it was actually his first ball in England wow. that, he, that he ever bowled. And the, the amount of spin that he put on the ball was Just absolutely incredible. ridiculous. Yeah. And he finished his career with 708 wickets for Australia alone over a 15-year period. And he played, he played all the, I think he played all the formats of the game. He, yeah, all the formats of the game. But I just wanted to sort of pay that little bit of a tribute because when I first got into cricket there was a time on the pitch where these spin bowlers would come on and whenever their over was finished everyone would just go oh bowling shine bowling shine and I was like why why are people saying that we don't have anyone called Shane in our team because the spin became so synonymous with Shane Warne yeah and this to me is why like when the like deaths of sports people just hit me so hard because these are like the people that we look up to and these are the people that we that gives us this escapism in life and 52 is no age it's absolutely no age to go. So I just wanted to take that little opportunity there to pay tribute to a great man who will be severely missed. Definitely. And I don't think there's any more to talk about this week. everything from me. Yeah, and I think that's everything from me. So we are hopefully looking at getting some guests on sometime soon because I think we mentioned it the other week about the French election is that we really like to get our lecturer, Ariane, on who is a French native and... Uh, lectures in French and politics so I feel as though getting her on at some point would be really really interesting definitely and because the French elections are soon so hopefully I can discuss with her about getting her on the podcast sometime soon yeah. so look out for that episode look out for that episode in the future and we will we will see you next time yep see you soon bye bye <laughs>